In this episode, I'm talking to Gurinda Dillon, CEO of Autocar. Autocar is London's largest PCO car rental company. With head offices in central London, Autocar provides PCO-ready vehicles. Autocar specialises in providing environmentally friendly vehicles to the PCO private hire driver market. And for those wondering what a PCO is, a PCO is a licence for public carriage office, otherwise known as taxi drivers. Grinder, thank you very much for joining the Zeus Founder and Chief podcast. I believe it's the first podcast that you've ever recorded. It is indeed. Well, thank you very much for your debut. Uh, hopefully this is one of many. We're not sat face to face, unfortunately. Um, this is a Teams recording. So are you in the home or are you in the office? I'm in our office actually in Hammersmith. How many people have you got in the office today? Uh, probably about half a dozen here. I mean, we've got desks for 20, but as we've all realised with the kind of new way of life, it's very hybrid. People come and go of their free will. We're a team of about 65, but we're in multiple locations. But in, in our head office, we're a team of about 15 to 20. Right, so you started the business with one car in 2016. You've now got over 3,000 cars. Can you talk me through that journey from one to 3,000? But it's actually now three and a half thousand uh, since we last spoke. Uh, yeah, well, look, I think, look, we didn't expect to get here. Um, I used to be in the black cab trade for many years. And I think we, prior to that, and uh, we had 250 black cabs and it took us 10 years. So we actually set the task of ourselves to say, well, it would take us 10 years to get to a thousand because we thought that was a pretty good effort to go. Anyway, we we started off uh, uh, and, and we, we were on our journey in the black cabs and we saw Uber come along. And I think the biggest thing we did was to be bold and uh, lose 70% of our revenue and say, look, we're going to start over again and start building up um, uh, in the Uber space because we thought this was a juggernaut and you know, we either get on board or get out of the way. So we kind of disassociated from there and said, look, this is what the future looks like uh, and uh, let's lean into it and hope to God we're right. Uh, and so we did. And, uh, you know, we were very humble. We were on a, we had a shipping container. It was 20 foot shipping container on a car park with a cable stuck in for internet. And our basically our container became an antenna. Uh, and and I have to say the summers were the worst summers. It was the only office where you were literally in string vests because it was so hot because you were just heated. <laughs> and then in the winter, I think we were we were doing we were tapping away on our laptops with woolly hats and woolly gloves because of course metal conducts heat both ways and it was like close the door this container is freezing us so was it just you at this stage yeah there was well there was just four of us four of us in the shipping container and then we started building traction and people said why don't you get a decent office and we said look we're going to put everything into the business and we're going to control our costs so we had really really any money we made we used to to, to raise money to buy cars uh, and put deposits down but we didn't have anything for ops. Ops had to be run on an absolute shoestring. And when I mean a shoestring, we didn't even have a toilet. So, uh, so we had to go knock, to, knock on the neighbor's toilet, neighbor's toilet and say, can we use your office toilet, please? Because we've got nowhere to go. Uh, uh, because we figured out that actually plumbing a toilet into a car park was very, very expensive. It wasn't that we didn't want to, it was just hugely expensive. And then we just, you know, we caught the wave uh, that was going on and people were no longer uh, hailing cabs, they were going to use their smartphones. And we saw this kind of cultural change develop. And whilst we couldn't be Uber, we could tag along on their coattails and say, well, if this change is going to happen, people are going to need vehicles uh, and uh, see whether we can help on that journey. And so we did that. 
And yeah, and we, we put it at a thousand thinking that's what we did. We got there in a few years uh, and then we just kept going and saying, well, let's set, set new targets. Good man, thank you. What was your background then? So you, you said you said that you were in the, the, the taxi service before, but before you started Autocar, what, what was your background? So I went to university, uh, did a uh, you know business degree at Manchester, uh, came out of that, and then um, I set up a business back in 2000, which was an equivalent of dark kitchens. So we had big dark kitchens uh, where you had Chinese food, Indian Thai. So kind of Deliveroo, but 25 years early, but dark kitchens Deliveroo. And what you learn in life is just because you've got the great idea doesn't mean it's, it's, it's time has yet come. And so, so, you, so you came up with the original M delivery well, then? I don't know if I came up quite with the digital, because remember there was no even internet then. So I came up with the original leafleting version of uh, Deliveroo. But the problem with that is, of course, I was probably 20 years too early. So serendipity is a part is a big part in life, which you learn from that. And during that journey, we realized we, you know, we were leafleting those days. There was no web, but it was all telephone orders. And we were super busy, but we were too peaky. And then I met one of the guys who sold, sold me chemicals, said, by the way, if you want a more steady business, have you thought about black cab rental? And I said, I assume everyone owns black cabs. And he said, no, a lot of cabs are rented. Uh, and my first customer, by the way, was in Sydney. And he was a plumber in Sydney who used to come over for the winter season because their summer, no one's heating broke down. Uh, and he would come and work like the, the winter season. And I used to have a lot of uh, also divers and stuff like that from Thailand who were black cab drivers who would again fly over for the winter season because there's no tourists, as well as all the usual cab drivers in London. But you met all these kind of interesting characters. And we built that business up to, to, uh, to about 2016 when we sold it and then uh, moved into, into the private hire market. Oh, nice. Thank you. Right, so go go back to Otter then. To talk to me. How does the process work for a driver? What different types of product or vehicles do you offer, and can you? Know, how does the finance work? Yeah. So, uh, well, we offer two products. One is a kind of short-term rental for people who want to test where their ride-hailing or the gig economy works for them. And then we have a more long-term product, which is uh, a rent-to-buy, which is gives them the flexibility of a rental so they can exit it just in case their personal circumstances change. But it's very much an ownership program whereby the idea is that if they stay in the rental for a set period of time, which used to be three years when it was a hybrid car, but electric cars have got more expensive, so it's kind of four years now. So if they stay in that product, we provide kind of a frictionless solution around the, the finance for the vehicle, insurance, maintenance, servicing, replacement vehicles, even charging for them. Listen to you talk about the business. You've mentioned your vehicle fleet hire, your financial services. I know there's a lot of tech behind the business. What are you? Are you financial services business? Are you fleet hire? How would you position the business? I think we're a business around love, actually. I think people don't often talk about that enough in, in life. And that is that, you know, we based the business around for a frugality, focus, obsession and love. And we really loved our customers and we cared about the community of drivers. And these are guys from very humble backgrounds. You know, the last two Ubers I've been into, I've been astonished at the drivers. I was literally in tears the other day. I was on a way to, to King's Cross and I got into a cab and the, and the guy tells me he's an Afghanistani driver on Uber. And I, he's telling me his journey and he said, um, he, was, he left Afghanistan, uh, moved, went to Dubai, went to Dubai to uh, South Africa, South Africa to Argentina, and then landed in London and claimed asylum. And I said, what, so how come you're doing? He says, I'm doing this job because I want to bring up my children. And I said, where are your children then studying this, thinking he was young? He goes, both are at Cambridge University. I went, what, the Cambridge University? He goes, yes, and he showed me the picture of tales. And he said, look, I'm working hard to give up my, I'm giving up my future for theirs. Amazing. 
Yeah, and he, and then the other driver I was in last night, he sent his daughter to Oxford for medicine. Similar thing, very humble guy, working hard, but just want to do better for their children. And I think, you know, we want to help those guys on their journey and help them and see how can we provide for them. So can we help them provide to their families in a sustainable manner? So can we get them to provide electric car, do good, help community and help provide for their families? And, you know, we love those stories, right? Because those are stories that are real, personable, and uh, and that's what we do. And so we say, how can we help you to get there? And I, we said, look, you know, I was speaking to another operator and he said, you know what, if the guy was three weeks away from default, uh, you know, and he was in default and he had, had like a thousand pounds left, commercially, you know, we could take his car. I said, but that's so heartless. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you, when the guys come that far, help him to get to the end line? And whatever it takes, let's just heave him across, you know, we stand on the shoulder of banks and they stand on our shoulders. And what we want to do is we very much cradle our customers. And, it, and that's where we start from. It's a point of love. I'm going to jump around a little bit some of the planned questions I had for, for you because I, I've had the benefit of knowing you for a little while now um, and some of the stories and anecdotes that are very similar to, to, what, to what you've just given us then. Talk to me around then your leadership style and how you, you're very much a people's person. Grinder and he's someone that I think has got um, a very big heart. Um, where do those sort of principles come from? What what makes you stick close to those principles of being? Obviously, you're in a business, and we understand everything that comes with that. But you do appear to be a good person. How do you stick with that sort of moral compass? I think you say you know what you do in business is you have a set of core values, and I think you live by those core values, and hopefully those emanate from you as a, as a leader to the rest, of the, the rest of the company. And you say, well, look, I don't mind if you make mistakes, but just can you explain to me how we got to that? And was it based around our core values? And you know, one of the principal core values we have is to make our mothers proud uh, and do things by right. Um, and so not, not, to, you know, uh, not to, to not necessarily make the commercial decision, but make the decision based around kindness and right and morally right. Because ultimately, if we do that and we look after our customers, that will long-term give us longevity. We're not about the short-term, short-buck or commercial short-term decision. This is about longevity. And uh, I think what we always want to do is also empowerment. I think it's really important to empower staff. I think education is a big thing. I always say we're an education company that happens to be a rental business. So we're always trying to educate our drivers about what does the future look like? How can we empower them towards that? And very much, you know, you know, if our driver, you know, ours, their success drives us. The more successful we can make our customers, the better it is for us. And that's what we work on. So obviously you become number one in London and you've got a, you've got a dominant position there. Where does the future take the business internationally? And have you already identified some of those cities where you know that, that your business model will work? Yeah, so we look, uh, we believe in what we call vertical cities or metro cities where there, you know, there's high density of population and people are moving around a lot. Uh, we think that applies in other cities in Europe and in North America. And I think because we're community different, uh, driven, not just a finance town company or a fintech company, I think that adds a different uh, lens to our business model and one that is really palatable to those kind of drivers. And I think the community of drivers that we service in London are very similar to the community of drivers you can see in Europe and in North America as well. They're often immigrant families, often from maybe uh, poorer incomes, and they need someone that they can lean on. And, and we feel that the services we provide can, can be there for those kind of customers as well. Did COVID have an impact in preventing you expanding internationally? Has that held you back? 
Um, and how did COVID, and how was the COVID impact um, in London for you? Yeah, um, COVID was tough for us. Uh, we came to a really hard stop. Uh, you know, ultimately we move fun and joy around. That's what we do. People come in the back of our cars and they're going to, you know, to meet with friends, engagements, weddings, parties, whatever. That all came to a hard stop. Uh, and so we saw that data very early on. So we, even before lockdown, I think, which was on March the 23rd, we could see it falling off on all the data that we had on vehicle movements. Um, and then, you know, it wasn't a case drivers didn't want to pay our rentals. It's just they couldn't. There was no, they weren't earning enough. Um, so it was pretty tough. Uh, we had to ask forbearance from the banks because we wanted to give forbearance to our, to our drivers. And one of the interesting things is we went early. So lockdown was on the 23rd of March, but we went on the 21st of March to all our drivers and said, look, we know you're hurting, but it's better for us to give it to you and give you those kind of payment breaks rather than you ask. And I think people really appreciated the kindness. And we said, look, we're going to live by our, our kind of core values and our morals and make our mothers proud and uh, and offer this without questioning it. We then started bleeding. And uh, I remember the, the rate that we were bleeding as the only way I could do it was we were losing six thousand pounds an hour every hour. Jesus. And, and there was nothing we could do. And and I think uh, I think the moment that it really uh, dawned on me is when my wife said to me, look, this is not of your making. So if this all goes down, don't blame yourself. You did. This was not. You, no one could have predicted this. Uh, and that kind of took the shackles off me and the weight that was on my shoulders, losing that amount of money every hour. And we bled for six weeks until we could get the banks uh, to pause our payments because we were still making all our finance payments. So we were using all the reserves of capital that we had. And that was Monday to Friday, by the way. That was not of every hour, but it was the way I could only do it. It was Monday to Friday, nine to five. We are going to lose six pounds an hour. And then at five o'clock, you stopped, sat with your family and said, uh, you know, that's it. Uh, we'll get up again and we'll go again. Uh, and that was tough. That was tough. And then we came out of that. And uh, uh, and then, and the reason the problem was for us is, you say, why don't you just knock the direct debits? You know, let's just bounce the direct debits. And the bank said, actually, if you do that, you're in, you're then in, you know, behind. And so we can't give you forbearance because you're in default. Uh, so they said, you've got to keep paying until we can figure out a way of how to stop direct debits because direct debits aren't designed to be stopped. So, and that took them six weeks. And then when we did that, we were saved, but we lost quite a lot of money for a period. And when you're at a small private business, that's hard. Yeah, so touch on those six weeks, was that, obviously you would have, you would have carried a lot of that and taken it home as well. How, how did you and the management team keep going through those periods? Was it, did you, did you think it'd be what, two weeks and another week adds on? Did you think it'd be longer than that six weeks? How, was the, you know, how did the light at the end of the tunnel slowly come into sight? Um, Look, I think you didn't know how long it was going to be, but you knew it would end. And I think actually, bizarrely, if you had, uh, you know, in those kind of situations, and I remember there was a an admiral's uh, comment that I led, and he said it was the uh, it was the optimist that often failed, not the pessimist. So what you've got to do is be a pessimist. Say it's going to keep happening, but you know it will end. The trouble with the optimist is he will say, well, actually, it'll end in two weeks, and it doesn't end. Then he feels a bit bad. Then he says four, and you miss that, and then eventually he gets broken. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, what you need to say is, I know it will end, I just don't know when, but I've got to wake up every day, dust myself off and go again. That's good, it's good insight. And obviously many different businesses encountered COVID in a different way and some got it late, some got it early. Obviously your business was one of those that was hit straight straight off the bat kind of thing. So, but well done for you, obviously coming out of that and um, surviving and thriving still. You mentioned the 
the various ride hailing providers and the fact that you saw that movement and you you sort of rode that wave. Um, how are you seeing the ride hailers pushing EV and do you think that those that are in the UK are different to any of the other international cities that you've identified? Yeah, so I think, you know, all the ride hailing apps, um, Uber particularly was early on on it, but the others have also joined the uh, joined it. So both Bolt and Tree now, now both all have EV policies. I think part of it is legislation in the sense that TfL is on that trajectory to, to go green, but Uber and all the others have bought into that. And Uber was very, very early on in that when they created the Clean Air Fund for drivers. Um, other cities, Amsterdam is very progressive on that side. The rest of Europe, I think, talks it, but doesn't necessarily action it. Um, but we do think, you know, London and Amsterdam are probably the core uh, green cities, and then it will ripple out from there across Europe, and then probably ripple across to North America. You mentioned Uber, and I know that you are a partner of Uber, and obviously that clean air policy is a big drive, um, yeah. TfL. Talk to us about your relationship with Uber. How did it come about? Um, why did they choose Ossocar? Well, I mean, they didn't choose us. What happened was, as you can imagine, when they came to town back in uh, kind of 2014-15, what they did was uh, they went to the large kind of uh, uh, car hire companies such as Europe Car, Hertz, Avis, to ask them because that would be in their natural partners. What they found is those kind of partners uh, dealt with corporates and holiday makers, uh, but weren't, it wasn't in their DNA to deal with ride-hailing drivers. Um, we came from that kind of culture, having been in the black cab trade. And what happened was uh, we went along on that relationship and uh, and we, we started building up, we kind of reached out to them, but at that time they were kind of uh, cloak and dagger, very insular, very hard to contact, no telephone number, no email addresses, no nothing. But eventually we reached out to them and said, look, we're providing a service here, we're helping it, and I think we're the right type of partner for you to assist. And eventually we forged relationships, it wasn't easy, it took us probably a year. And then we we kind of gained their confidence because they could see from drivers' feedback that actually these were really good guys trying to do the right thing and trying to support it. And they, they bought into our values. And then we started to grow from there. So long as I've got my data right, and I've already got your number of cars wrong so far, I've got a 6% of miles driven in London are electric. First of all, is it 6%? I think it was when I gave you that figure, which was a few months ago. It's probably now closer to uh, probably seven to eight percent now, but okay, <laughs> close enough. I will kick my data sources there, which is obviously a good sell. Um, so seven percent of miles um, driven in London, or close to seven percent now electric. At what rate do you see that increasing? I mean, it's already gone up one percent in a short period of time. But how do you see that um, that rate increasing as over what period? Um, I think we, it is going to start rapidly increasing. I don't know whether now a little bit of cost of uh, cost of living crisis, inflation, and everything else is holding people back, maybe converting as quickly as they should. Correct. But we still think it will rapidly increase. But we would hope, I mean, Uber wants to get to 100% by 2025. I think realistically, that could be 26, 27 uh, by the time it happens. But that's very much the intention. They might, they might miss it, but I don't think they'll miss it by much. Uh, and that's the likelihood from pretty much all the other apps as well. They want to go ahead of that. But Uber by far has been the bit boldest on that statement. Market drivers for Otto very much in your favour and Tailwinds being ESG, green initiatives, government incentives. Um, electrification is very much on everyone's minds and how that EV growth um, you know, is, is coming. It all feels very positive for Otto and all feels very much like you, you're well positioned to take advantage of that. 
What are the challenges to your growth? Um, it's a look. <laughs> People think we're a car company, we're not, we're a people company. We're both with our customers, we're people, but also we're driven by the talent that we can uh, resource. So that's always going to be a challenge for you to find the right people um, to take the business forward. Uh, debt is always an issue for us because we're buying so many vehicles all the time. And as a small company, we have to always sell that story of where we see the vision and going. Uh, that's always a challenge for that. Um, tech. Tech is always a challenge. Just matter. I think whatever business you're in these days, you're a tech business in one form or another. So it, it's sharing all our kind of messaging and communication with our drivers such that they can see whatever they want to see, whether it's account queries or anything like that, and digitalizing that. So our big thing is to try to digitalize the metal of the vehicle over the next five years. You mentioned the capital intensive nature of the business, and obviously you, you acquire the vehicles, etc. Talk to us around how you funded the business today, whether that's through debt, equity, what sort of fundraisers that you have done. Yeah, so I'm still the sole shareholder of the business um, and we raised the whole business so far on debt. And so what you had to have is a pretty concrete business plan. You had to sell a story to all the banks and you have to run very, very tidy books. So always make sure that you're growing, always make sure your revenues are growing, your profitability is growing, because uh, debt raising is always hard because they always want to make sure you can service the debt. Uh, and, and kind of explaining the story and explaining those tailwinds because not everyone will always get those tailwinds. So it's having that in a kind of condensed way and explaining to them what, what, uh, what need we're fulfilling. Uh, because sometimes they don't see it. Uh, and then when they start to see it, okay, we kind of get it now. But even then they can be very cautious. And it's always, and the other thing I would say is, it doesn't matter how big you get, it's challenging at every level. You would think now that we're three and a half thousand cars, it'd be easy. It isn't. It just, it's a different set of problems and a different set of challenges because actually people are more nervous now because at least if you're only 50 cars, you fail, they can pick them all up and, and resolve the matter fairly quickly. Three and a half thousand, that's a, that's a much bigger problem. Yeah, no, okay. I, well, yeah, I can, I can, I can appreciate the sort of challenges that you have. What does the, what does the future hold? For Autocar, in terms of, do you have a an aspiration to get to X number of vehicles, a a certain size, do you know public markets? Do you see yourselves as as a PLC? And you know, when are we when are we going to be driven around in flying cars? <laughs> uh, well, certainly not by me. I hope. Uh, <laughs> no, um, <laughs> um, no, I. So I think we've, we've got constant aspirations to grow because I think the management team feel like we're right at the start of this curve and I think it's a 20 year trend. So we want to enjoy that. Where does it lead us to? I honestly don't know. I think you can always look at the next one or two years. I think always looking forward to five years ahead. So much happens in this time uh, that I think it all gets fuzzy. It's only on an Excel spreadsheet that the curve goes in the top right corner. The linear graph goes to the top right corner. In life, there are a lot of other, you know, uh, swerve balls along the way. Um, so I think for us, for the next few years, it's about growth in London and possibly international growth in Europe. That's where we'd like to get to. Uh, whether we then get to North America, let's see. We'll take it one step at a time. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Have you have you always had that sort of careful planning or was that a COVID coming out of the blue, as it were, taught you that actually, you know, 18, 24 months is, is, is the right sort of time period to be looking out for? No, we've always been 18 to 24 months. I think, you know, looking to it, you want to see long term trends and see if you can follow that and steer into what the future looks like and see where we can get that. But generally, I think visibility is not more than 18 to 24 months. After that, I think it gets a bit fuzzy. And I think by the time you get there in 18 to 24, things sometimes change. Final question for me, Gurinder. 
you having your final dinner? Um, assuming it's a good free courser. Aside from family, aside from family, you get to choose free guests, um, whether that's from history, people who are alive today, people who are inspirational, any walk of life. Give me your free guests and obviously why you've chosen them. Okay, well, I think most people would have gone for something like a, a Jesus and a Muhammad Ali. And I'd love to have asked people like Jesus, you know, what was it like to have an overbearing father? And then, uh, and then, and then you know, if you had Muhammad Ali there, who would always claim to be the greatest, say, do you know who you're sat next to? <laughs> but so I think that would all end up being fractious. And actually, if you're having a dinner with three people, you just want it to be a good time and fun. So I actually think the three I would have, I think I'd have someone like Ryan Reynolds, because I think he'd be a nice guy and a good fun person to have a chat and a bit of laugh with. I thought Michael Bublé would be another good one to sit on the table. And I think if worst case we're short for conversation, you can have a hell of a sing along on the table and have a really good thing. And then I thought, you know what, you want another everyman to say, you know what, look at this dinner table we're at. So I thought actually get Phil Dunphy from the Modern Families uh, and have Phil Dunphy there because he would be just as excitable and as a kid as I would be to say, look, we've got Ryan Reynolds and we've got Michael Bublé at the table and we're going to have a great sing along. And I think he's just, you know, He's all about love, that poor guy. He gets a hard time sometimes in life from his family. And I probably can relate to that as a father and a husband. So so I think you know, having an everyman with me would make me feel very humble and enjoy the conversation of, of two superstars such as Ryan Reynolds and uh, Michael Bublé. Gurinder, I'll be honest, I never thought that you would have gone for the various people that you've chosen there. And I've literally sat here in front of a screen with, with my mouth open with a big smile on my face because I was I was expecting probably something along the lines of as you said a Muhammad Ali or yeah okay that is uh, actually you know the trouble with those are okay it's great you can have a Bill Gates and all that but actually you know the one thing I always tell my children most importantly in life is you should always be good company that's a really good part of life you know you can have achieved a lot in life but actually when you sit down with people be good company and actually I think you know, I saw an interview of Ryan Reynolds the other week and I thought, you know what, he's a really nice guy. He's just, he's humble. And look, anyone who could buy Wrexham has got heart. <laughs> anyone who bought Wrexham FC has heart. You know, he didn't go for some glamour club. And I, I think he was in the news the other day because he was in the playoffs with Bromley and whatever else. And there he is at Wembley, you know, rooting for his club. Uh, admittedly, he had a few superstars with him, like David Beckham and Will Ferrell. I was going to mention that on the basis that I think he celebrated the goal that hadn't got in, but never mind. <laughs> he exactly. still got a bit of time. Yeah. But I thought, you know what? That looked like that. You look like, oh, right, he would be a bit of fun. You know, you're gonna, you want to have a nice, memorable, fun evening. And I think singing along with Bublé, with Rob Ryan would join in, and Phil Dunphy would be, you know, a buck besides himself having kittens. I think, and I thought that's better than having. Gandhi, God knows who, or whatever else. You know, all those. Really, okay, really nice to have you here. But oh, it's been a bit serious to conversation. <laughs> you give me the insight into um, a very interesting personality, Gurinder. Um, I clearly can't speak for you, other, but the way I see you operate, if she saw you operate the way I do, I think she'd be very proud of you. And um, you've got a very, very good moral compass, as I've said to you previously. Thank you for joining us on the Founder in Chief podcast. Well, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you're an entrepreneur or CEO and have a story you would like to feature or would like to suggest a founder you'd like to hear from, drop us a line at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. That's live, L-I-V-E, at zeuscapital.co.uk. Or follow us on social media at Founder and Chief. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. 
This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorized and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.